Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education Podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field. My name is Eric Van Dusen from Data Science Undergraduate Studies in the Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society at UC Berkeley, and I'll be leading our conversation today. And my name is Harry Lee, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping out today too. So today we're excited to have Jim Colliander with us. Uh, Jim, it's great to have you with us. Uh, can you tell us your current affiliations? Sure. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jim Colliander. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of British Columbia, and I serve as the director of the Pacific Institute for the Mathematical Sciences. Um, in the context of data science, I've also been really fortunate to work with some fabulous teammates and helped create the National Federated uh, Data Science Platform for Canada called Syzygy. And I also helped catalyze the creation of an organization called Callisto. And then with colleagues of yours from Berkeley and elsewhere, um, I've helped to form the International Interactive Computing uh, Collaboration 2i2c. Great, thanks. So for people who don't know Jim Colliander, could you give us an introduction on how you got into data science education and what you're currently doing in this area? Sure. So uh, when I arrived from the University of Toronto to the University of British Columbia to take up a leadership role at this institute that I'm fortunate to lead, I began to ask myself, how can this institute help the mathematical scientists that we're supposed to serve? Um, it's great when the institute can provide money for a summer school or a workshop or co-fund a postdoc, but I asked myself if there were ways that the institute could support um, researchers across the broad network. Maybe that's another thing I should say is PIMS is kind of weird from the perspective of many institutes in the sense that it's um, administered from the University of British Columbia but it serves 10 universities in four Canadian provinces in the state of Washington and also the state of Oregon. And so the programs that PIMS runs are distributed, uh, you know, they're kind of familiar now that we've had COVID times, but prior to COVID, PIMS was running, you know, virtual meetings with platforms like Zoom, bringing people together. And I asked myself, is there some way that I can use digital tools to facilitate this collaboration better? And I was fortunate to have Ian Allison on my team, who's just this incredible computational physicist turned system administrator. And I suggested to Ian that we might try to make Jupiter available to this community that we serve. Um, and there's some you know, further reasons to develop there, but that's kind of the that initial step in it. Um, do you wanna hear a little bit more about why? Go for it. Okay. so so. PIMS would run workshops, say, for a group of researchers that would want this version of MATLAB set up on this many desktops so that the community of people that were assembling would be able to do this work. 
And so my colleague Ian would, you know, hunt around UBC or hunt around Simon Fraser University for um, a computer lab with the right hardware. And then he would have to get permission to tear down the OSs and install the appropriate OSs and figure out how to do the headstands around licensing and then deploy the appropriate tool chains so that this workshop could take place. And so when we first started talking about Jupyter for PIMS, part of the idea was, look, we could maybe deploy something in a cloud environment where the sysadmin tasks are interact with cloud. But once that's deployed, then people could use their own laptops. We could run it in standard classrooms and we could support the operation of these scientifically rich computational workshops in a faster way through PIMS. And so that was the initial impetus. But then maybe with a mixture of uh, ambition, if not hubris, we uh, talked to our colleagues at Compute Canada, which is the infrastructure provider in Canada for a lot of HPC. And at that time, the chief scientific officer, Dugan O'Neill, um, liked the idea and made infrastructure available for us to turn on kind of vanilla Jupyter hubs for any university that wanted to set up single sign-on off. And we did that. And so now there are about 26 universities across Canada that are getting access to Jupyter Hub um, delivered by PIMS using this Compute Canada infrastructure. And then PIMS is using these tools also to do those kinds of workshops and, and support collaboration in new ways. So the thing expanded far beyond scope uh, than it was initially envisioned, but it's been really exciting to see that because I feel like it does advance the PIMS mission in a remarkable way. Awesome story. Um, early, early, early mover in the space. Um, so what do you feel like is a challenge that like taught you a lesson about this? Like when you're trying to build this national network in Canada, like what are some challenges that you had to get over? Yeah. So I think a key challenge is, uh, getting people who are either poised to really benefit from this type of new way of doing things to see the benefits of the cloud and collaboration. If I have a, you know, my Fortran tool chain or my MATLAB tool chain, and I've got a team of graduate students and postdocs that are working with me and my collaborators expect me to produce documents that way, it's hard to get those people to change behavior. And the transformational benefits around reproducibility and open science and, you know, software development style agile collaboration in disciplines that don't necessarily use those mechanisms, that's been a challenge to try to convert the people that should be easy to convert. Um, there are other groups that don't use computation as much, especially in my area of pure mathematics, where a lot of the work is chalk and fountain pen, and then you use tech to write it up. But I think there's an opportunity to do more experimentation in these pure mathematics areas using these types of tools than people um, generally appreciate. So there's a lot of bleeding edge folks that we're trying to empower and give um, showcase uh, and, and spotlights on so that those examples come to light. Um, and then maybe the, the, the third challenge is there are groups of people that are hungry for this that we didn't know who were hungry for it, like people in digital humanities and in social sciences, and then they jump in and use it really, really hard and are very, very grateful and thankful. And then they want to find new ways to collaborate with more technical people. And so 
having technical people like computer scientists and mathematicians suddenly realize that there's this poet that wants to talk to you about natural language processing, um, that's sometimes weird too, because people don't quite understand why a poet or a historian or a sociologist wants to talk to them about AI, but they do. Fantastic. Thank you for that insight. And um, this next question is a, is a bit of a broader question, but what do you see as the future for data science education? How do you think it's going to continue to evolve over time? Uh, it's interesting. So I want to first sort of change the scope of the premise of the question. So, um, you know, data science education might be sort of in the minds of some people, you know, a repackaged way to talk about teaching people about the central limit theorem and statistics. But I don't think that's right at all. So what I think is right is that, um, you know, what do you call food in Italy? Uh, you don't call it Italian food. You call it food. You know, it's just it's food. And what do you call re what do you call digital research in the academy? Well, it's it's not digital research. It's just research. Every subject has a digital component. And that's not just because email facilitates conversations with collaborators. It's transformational in the way that the printing press was transformational. And so when I say, when you ask me, what's the future of data science education? It's kind of like, what's the future of education? Because education is going to require literacy in computation, um, a facility with data. Uh, and we, the collective group of data science educators, I think have sort of democratic responsibilities that go beyond, you know, Sesame Street era. We have to prove to people every person, that they have the capacity to be mathematically, statistically, and computationally sophisticated so that they can participate in democracy, not get hoodwinked by misinformation on Twitter, and be able to make better decisions because they understand the data that's driving policy. So the future of data science education is in some ways existential to democracy, I think. And it's not just, you know, what's going to happen next year and what's going to happen five years from now. We're in a new era of the way the internet delivers information, and we have to train the readers and producers of that information in new ways. Great, thank you. That's a brilliant perspective. Um, and it, it leads into my next question as well. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but how do you think that as, as data scientists and as educators, um, how, should we be, how should we be creating or evolving um, a community around data science education? Yeah, this is a hard question. Uh, so <clears throat> three gentlemen are talking about data science education right now. Um, one of us is a person of color, as far as I can tell based on the Zoom here. Uh, but we have programmers that dominate the tech scene. We have uh, super wealthy people running venture capital that are by and large male and white and uh, they make investments in technology ideas, often led by people they imagine to be younger versions of themselves. And so there's this self-replicating problem in tech. There's a similar self-replicating problem in STEM, and we have to break this problem. We have to find ways to broaden participation. And 
how to overcome these obstacles is a really big challenge. In, in my area of mathematics, uh, we have a community that um, often thinks of themselves as anchored in rigor. And therefore, we imagine that we make decisions that are evidence-based and are free from bias because we're so careful. But the reality is that we are just as biased as other communities, even though we have this rigorous way of approaching our own science. So uh, I see a real, uh, there are many, many societal obstacles, you know, systemic racism, uh, colonialism, uh, sexism, that are blocking us from uh, making this transformation. But in the same way that Gutenberg saw a way to transform his world and convert everybody to Christianity with technology, you know, maybe there's some way that thoughtful leaders can use this technological transformation to break down these systemic barriers. And so I'm optimistic that the technology is creating an opportunity for change, but there are many examples over the past, say, 20 to 25 years with the development of the internet where similar opportunities may have been perceived, but it didn't happen. So I'm cautious but I think we have to be really careful and, and to try to create that, that opportunity. And this isn't just because it's somehow, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. Like, we have to do it. And one of the reasons that we have to do it is if you optimize over a bigger set, you get a higher uh, objective function value. And right now we're optimizing over a small set of mostly white dudes. And we have to optimize over a larger set to get better ideas involved. And some of those ideas that come from others, you know, may be profoundly transformational to our society. And as we face things like the misinformation that I referenced before, climate change, uh, you know, the issues around systemic racism, um, these others that have typically not participated in these conversations may be the crucial contributors to the next phase of the conversation and in improving society in general. So it's absolutely vital that we do this, this broadening participation work. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for that answer. Um, I want to take it back to some of your specific experiences. Uh, first of all, with PIMS, I mean, I think of PIMS or the, you know, I think of the Berkeley, uh, you know, uh, corollary as sort of like elite institution, elite mathema uh, mathematicians. Um how did PIM sort of like have a way to respond to this, this thing that's happening with data science education sort of at a broader level? And um, I feel like there's been significant initiatives to be like, how do we, how do we sort of spread this out to uh, more participants? That's a good question. Uh, so PIMS is now in its 25th anniversary year, and I've had the good fortune to lead it uh, as director over the past five but the track record of PIMS was inspirational, you know, and the 20 years prior to my arrival to the Institute were really, I think, setting in motion um, a lot of the activities that I was trying to build upon through this effort. So I think PIMS is a world leader uh, in outreach towards certain equity-seeking groups in Canada, a particular equity-seeking group that uh, PIMS has done a lot of work towards is the First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities, uh, which are, you know, really struggling in the wake of colonialism. 
and challenges around reconciliation and truth and the relationships between governments have been topics of recent conversation in, in Canada. Um, at some point when I was early in my term as director, I made a comment to one of my collaborators, Melania Alvarez, who's a real leader in this direction, that calculus is a hurdle. You know, you have to be able to jump over the hurdle before you get into post-secondary. And she tore a strip off of me. Oh my gosh. She said, it's not a hurdle. It's the wrong way to view calculus. Instead, it's the launch pad. It's the escalator. It's the training that you need. And once you have that, it opens up STEM to you. So rather than thinking of it as, you know, a filter, instead we should view it the other way. And it's something that we have to push people up. It's a ramp we have to push people up. Now, I don't think that calculus is the only ramp here. There are many examples. Um, so PIMS has also had a long history in trying to improve um, access to STEM by women and girls. And uh, I've been really inspired to learn about a lot of the things that we've done there. So when it comes to this project, uh, at, say Syzygy and Callisto, I was really inspired by all of this background and then tried to find ways to use digital delivery me methods to reach larger audiences, to reach remote audiences, and to build on this prior tradition that I referenced. Um, so it was partly just seeing digital as a scaling mechanism was uh, one thing that we were trying to do. Um, along the way, it's also shown, though, that you know there are people that can interact with these digital methods maybe uh, better than they can with the face-to-face -face methods, maybe just because of their personality. So it's just a different way to include some people that wouldn't otherwise be inspired to do things at the chalkboard or in a contest scenario or something like that. Awesome. Um, I want to touch on Syzygy as well, this idea of like making federated hubs across universities. Uh, I sort of see like, you know, you can get something like this going for research, um, but it can have a big effect for, uh, you know, sort of scaling our data science education teaching approaches as well. Uh, I wanted to know if you want to comment on that, like, like leveraging the high tech hub, but, you know, using it to democratize education too. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I had this idea about maybe we can do something with Jupiter, it was around the same time that I saw this blog post from Jessica Hamrick, uh, who, if I recall correctly, was a postdoc at Berkeley at the time. And she explained how she and others at Berkeley were standing up a hub to be cloud accessible to support um, data science education at Berkeley. And that blog post was inspirational for my colleague Ian and I on, on Syzygy. And so what we've done is using access to OpenStack from this uh, federal provider, Compute Canada, we've stood up the something like the Littlest Jupiter Hub for all these universities that wanted to get access to cloud-hosted Jupiter. And then we integrated with their single sign-on mechanisms. So people at McGill can log into mcgill.syzygy.ca with their McGill credentials, and they land in this hub. And that's been really successful. However, the Littlest Jupiter Hub kind of begins to fall apart when... 300 to 500 people simultaneously log in. And we at PIMS have not deployed scalable uh, improvements to this system. So there's some creaky issues that could emerge. 
And we are aware that, you know, there's these other ways, there are these other ways to deliver Jupiter, like Zero to Jupiter Hub, which is Kubernetes-backed, to achieve scaling. And so eventually we're going to have to find a strategy to uh, meet the growing demand and then also generate a revenue stream to make this whole thing sustainable. But I think the lesson of Syzygy, uh, there, there there are three main lessons. The first lesson is you can deliver these types of tool chains nationally with a single engineer. And secondly, there's massive demand for these tools. And then third, there's a problem that emerges when the demand eclipses what can be delivered by a single engineer. And so there is a bit of catastrophe that emerges after the initial success. Um, And we have some ways to, I think, address that and you know, that's some things that I've also been building with, with other partnerships. But that's kind of the success of Syzygy. Um, and something I didn't appreciate when building it, but was highlighted by uh, collaborators at Berkeley, Berkeley that reviewed a bunch of different um, approaches to delivering data science infrastructure, was Syzygy has turned out to have really important inclusivity benefits by making people just be able to access these tool chains uh, using the browser as the OS, essentially rather than requiring them to install a bunch of software in a complicated way. And so this creates some new pathways for people that don't traditionally have access to begin to access. And that's partly why these humanities folks and social science folks um, kind of celebrated Syzygy. Okay, great segue. Uh, I would love it if you just give us your perspective on 2i2c. You have been advocating for something like 2i2c, and I maybe seen a couple versions of like a, a slide deck envisioning this. Uh, now it's starting to happen um, and sort of like, you know, what's give us some vision on how this could affect data science education in the next few years. So, yeah, running Syzygy led me to begin to worry about this future state where we may not be able to adequately meet the demand. And the universities that we're serving, were starting to ask about service level agreements And the little institute that could out West was really not incorporated in such a way to provide that kind of liability and service level. So I began to worry and I started talking with leaders in the space about what we're going to do here. I also began to become worried that if we didn't find a way to do this in a university aligned way, that this service would end up becoming another service delivered by the monopoly cloud providers And I worried that we might be reproducing the problems that we had with Elsevier and others in uh, the Web 1.0 era, where PDFs we produced as scholars were sold back to our libraries for an exorbitant fee. That didn't seem right. So I started talking about these issues with some folks. And eventually, these conversations catalyzed the creation of a new uh, organization called 2i2c. And I have been just blown away by the team of co-founders that... Um, agreed to help build this initiative with me. So they include Fernando Perez, the creator of the IPython notebook, and a person that kind of leads the Jupyter ecosystem in large part, Ryan Abernathy, the catalyzing force behind Pangeo, uh, big data climate science community. Um, Catherine Carson, who led the Berkeley data program, as far as I can understand, uh, you know, a, a, an historian who brings sensitivity around lots of aspects of uh, broadening participation in STEM and in computing. Um, Chris Holdgraf, a community 
leader, an open source leader who brings together Jupiter Book and, and other ideas. Lindsay Hagee, who brings Earth and ocean atmospheric science perspective uh, and also a big contributor to uh, the, the Pangeo community. And UV Panda, who's, you know, the DevOps expert at figuring out how to deliver Jupiter Hub at scale. And it's just this, you know, remarkable open science and open source advocate. So these heroes in the space um, agreed to work with me on this vision. And so what do we want to do? We want to find a fair way to reliably and robustly deliver open science tool chains, open data, open compute tool chains to large audiences in research and education. And through this delivery, we want to find ways to take the open source communities that are building these tool chains and connect them in authentic ways with the research and education communities that are using these tool chains to train the next cohort of researchers and, and students. And uh, along the way to find a revenue stream to keep these open source communities vibrant and, uh, and roll this out. But it has to be aligned with the university's research, service, and teaching mission. And it should not be built as some sort of for-profit unicorn strategy. So that's what we're trying to do with 2i2c. And it's hard because, you know, the commercial cloud providers could just kind of roll over. And then this might be much more easily accessed from them with certain downscale risks um, a decade from now. So that's what we're trying to do. Great. Thanks so much. All right. Final, like short, short, fun question. If you could teach some new class that would be like data science uh, flavored, what would your new class be? So uh, that's interesting you, you should ask. So um, it's not short. I'm sorry, I got two answers. Okay, the first is that I want to try to blend Pangeo and economics so that I can understand the attribution of climate change problems better. So I want to blend the economic impact of climate change and the monitoring with satellites. That's one thing. And the second thing is I'm really interested in quantum computation. It's not there yet, but it may come soon. And so I think getting a young group of people into quantum computing quickly is going to have transformational potential. Fantastic. Um, I would take both those classes. Um, so it's time for us to wrap up. Did you have any parting words or wisdom for data science educator, educators? Uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for doing it. Um, and I just want to harken back to what I said. Um, the transformation that data science education will unleash is bigger than data science. And that transformational potential, that you know, emancipation of many people uh, through um, the sharing of these state-of-the-art tool chains um, is really a big deal. And so thank you for the work that you're doing. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts and join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.